Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Matthew Wilcoxon. We discussed his recently published book, Divine Humility, God's Morally Perfect Being, with Baylor University Press. Um, as regular listeners will be aware, it has been some time since I've released a podcast, at least I think a month or a month and a half, and I'm very sorry for this delay, but my family was moving and the semester was ending and yada yada yada. Uh, but we will be doing new episodes. Uh, I have one planned uh, with ben, Dr. Ben Winter who wrote on Bonaventure, so we should be recording that one soon. Um, I, I think also I'll be doing a podcast with um, Hans Bersma, um, who's done a lot of work on sacramental theology, and um, I'm very excited about that one, uh, but we'll see uh, if, if, I think that one will be recorded in February, so that one will be some time away. But we do have some stuff on uh, tap, and so that's coming down the pipeline, so be, be looking out for those. Um, so with uh, Dr. Wilcoxon today, we talked about the, his book and we talked about the uh, different conceptions of humility uh, from Augustine to Karl Barth to uh, the more recent Catherine Sonderegger. Um, and Dr. Wilcoxon even uh, makes a somewhat controversial claim about uh, some theology at Princeton. Um, but no, but it, it was all good fun. Um, but I hope that uh, you'll enjoy this podcast. Um, and um, Dr. Wilcoxon was, was a delight to talk to. And it was a pleasure to, to get to hear a little bit more about his work and research. So thank you for listening. Please rate us and review us on iTunes um, and uh, follow us on Twitter and all those other things. Um, we appreciate that. Uh, so with no further ado, here's Dr. Wilcoxon. And how did you end up in Australia? I mean, did you was it to go to school there? Did you and you worked with Ben Myers? Is that right? Yeah. So I was in California, where I'm from, and I had done a bachelor's and was finishing up a master's, and really had decided I would love to do a PhD. And um, I was talking to some folks in the UK. That was sort of what I was thinking is that we would try to go to one of the universities over there. And, um, and then I, I somehow started having some engagement with Ben Myers online through his blog. And, and I think I was writing on a, a different blog at the time and we corresponded a little bit. And then I asked him in, a, in an offhand manner, I said, do, you know, do you do PhD, do you oversee PhD theses, dissertations? And, um, he said, oh, yes, I do. Like, let's talk. And and um, so I, I ended up talking to him and it was a sort of con strange confluence of things. My wife had lived in Australia when she was a girl uh, for a little while and just fell in love with it. And her family had built all these connections there. Um, and so we knew people in Australia. And then in talking to Ben, I really liked him. He's this uh, he still is young, uh, even now, especially then as young um, very gifted writer and um, very approachable, accessible guy. Um, he was really helpful to me. And um, yeah, so those things were kind of coming together a bit there. And then I, uh, through through Ben's advocacy, was able to uh, receive a, a scholarship um, there with the university. Um, and so it just all came together really well to, to go to Australia, to go to Sydney rather than, you know, trying to go to the UK. Yeah. So is it like the UK system? Were you there for like three or four years just writing or did you do court, like seminar work with him or how, I don't know how they do it? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty much exactly like the UK system. There are some um, seminars you, you go to, one-off kind of seminars um, that you're 
quote unquote re- required to go to. Um, but, but principally it's, it's uh, dissertation writing. So there's no um, coursework formally. There's, there's no comps. It's, it's a UK type system. And so uh, I was, you know, supposed to be there for three or maybe four years, but I ended up um, a couple years in, did, did a couple years full time and then uh, took a position at a church. And so I went to part time and took a, a few years there to finish my Ph.D. And, and did you become so you grew up maybe in Calvary Chapel? Did you become Anglican while you were in the U.K. or was that before then? Uh, yeah. So in Australia. So um, or, sorry, Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Calvary Chapel churches. Then I went off to college in Biola, at Biola and uh, became, you know, sort of in a non non-denominational Baptist kind of evangelical setting. Um, and um, but then I. I really sort of read my way into thinking, you know, I, I think I'm Anglican um, or would like to be uh, a certain type of Anglican an, an evangelical Anglican that, uh, you know, has uh, emphasis on scripture and, and a personal relationship with Christ, but also uh, worships uh, liturgically and has Episcopal church structure and, uh, has a you know connection to um, the the history and tradition of the church uh, in a more robust way, and so that so I kind of went there with my eye on becoming a an, an Anglican. Sydney is very famous for um, being a, a bastion of, of evangelical Anglicanism, and so okay. uh, yeah, so I actually ended up they let me I I weaseled my way in and and got a ministry position as a lay person. Uh, so I wasn't ordained, but I but I got to do some ministry with limitations um, in, in a church. And that was my way of, of getting my foot in the door to be an Anglican minister. Well, so Dr. Wilcoxon is the uh, is an Anglican priest uh, at and the associate rector of Church of the Resurrection in Washington, D.C. Um, and he did his Ph.D. Uh, in Australia under Ben Myers. And, and the, the book that came out of that is uh, I, at least I assume, right, the, the divine humility came out of your dissertation. Yes, that's right. It's uh, only slightly edited and improved. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, I, so uh, the reason I wanted Dr. Wilcoxon on wasn't just uh, because I wanted to talk about his book. It, it was that, but, uh, so like one of the things that we're doing in the podcast, uh, is I'm trying to expand kind of the conversations that we have. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about what authors said. Um, and recently we've been digging a little bit more into sort of, uh, the doctrines and, um, we had Matt Emerson on, uh, or, well, we've recorded, uh, Matt Emerson talking about the the descent to the dead. We've had Philip Carey talking a little bit about the meaning of Protestant theology and how salvation works. We're getting a little bit more into the mechanics of uh, the the theological position. So I'm I wanted to learn from Dr. Will Coxon a little bit more about what we might call more dogmatic theology or systematic theology versus what I tend to do, uh, which is more like. We, we call it historical theology, which is we're not we're, we're neither historians nor theologians. Uh, we're just bad at both um, <laughs> or, 
or at least that's what I say. Um, so I wanted to think a little bit more uh, along, like along with uh, Dr. Wilcoxon about how his uh, understanding of humility works, because I also did humility in Augustine, but I did it uh, about how Augustine preached uh, the virtue of humility. Uh, but Dr. Wilcoxon was talking about the doctrine of divine humility, uh, which might be a little bit different or at least have some different uh, uh, applications. Um, so that's kind of uh, where I want this conversation to head is, is just think through uh, exactly how his his work looks a little bit differently, but but uh, sort of jumps off from uh, from Augustine still. Um, so. Uh, I'll just say broad. I'll just ask broadly. What what drew you to writing about humility? Was it humility that was it of interest to you, or was it something else? And then you ended up in humility. Yeah, I have to be really honest when people ask me this. I, I had a uh, an idea that I was working on for my dissertation, and it had nothing to do with humility. It was about time, uh, and was going to write about. A, Karl Barth's theology of time. And um, so I was already sort of in love with Augustine a little bit and ended up doing, um, uh, you know, trying my hand at some writing on what Augustine had to say about time, you know, in very famous passage of, of Confessions 11. And, um, you know, in the midst of that, I just was reading so much Augustine, reading so much Barth, and I sort of got sidetracked or distracted by them both talking about humility in in relation to God, you know? So in Karl Barth very explicitly saying that God is supremely humble and, and meaning some really interesting things by that. Um, and then Augustine too uh, saying, you know, using phrases about the humility of God. And um, yeah, I sort of just got sidetracked in a way in the early stages where you're just exploring all these different ideas and, and thought, you know, I think I'd really like to write about this. I think I could write uh, something that I, th I think I could accomplish a thesis or dissertation that I'm happy with on this topic. Uh, and I was feeling that I, I either wouldn't enjoy it as much or, or wouldn't be able to accomplish what I really wanted if I, stayed on the topic of time. And so I just talked to my supervisor and said, let's, I think I want to switch to this. And he said, I love it. That's a great idea. And so, so that's, that's what really happened. I, I just got interested in, you know, it struck me as like made perfect sense, but also a little bit odd to say that God is humble. And, and I was intrigued by that. So it became a, a bit of a problem to solve. Like what, what do you mean by that? And, and what don't you mean by that? Augustine and Bart and what do we do with that dogmatically? Yeah. Well, and I suspect with Augustine, uh, it's it can be pretty hard. There's a, a French scholar uh, from the middle part of the 20th century who says we can find Augustine saying all over the place what pride is, but it's a little harder uh, to pin him down exactly what he means uh, when he's talking about the humble God or uh, you know Christ being humble and this sort of thing. So sometimes Augustine uh, is a little uh, slippery um, and and a little harder to pin down, but. Uh, you have uh, you you brought out some really interesting and uh, kind of um, helpful things when you were talking about Augustine's interpretation of Exodus three. So we're going to kind of jump down a little bit uh, in the questions, but um, 
but so Augustine talks about um, the the divine name and how uh, and how that works in a, uh, in in uh, in Exodus three. So could you tell tell us a little bit about how Augustine understands humility and what place the this uh, passage from Exodus has? Yeah, I was just really taken with these two sermons, uh, sermons six and seven on the Exodus three uh, verses fourteen and fifteen. Um, and he talks, you know, there he's, he's preaching on the divine name and he picks up on the fact that though we commonly talk about that as a place where there's one name, the divine name, uh, Augustine really parses it out into two names that are given there. And, and the one name is, um, I am that I am the, the divine name, but the other name is the one that follows right on the heels of that in the, in the text, uh, which is, um, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, he, Augustine calls one the name of being and the other the name of mercy. And it just seemed uh, like this perfect encapsulation of what you see happening throughout Augustine in this regard of, of God in himself put into this very interesting and fruitful juxtaposition with uh, God and his being uh, for us. Now, obviously, the in himself and for us are uh, not terms and ways that Augustine himself describes this. I'm, I'm importing later later categories there. But um, yeah, the way that he, he talks about um, the two realities of, of God as he is in himself or the name of being and, and yet, as, as God has revealed to us uh, in the name of mercy, uh, that, that juxtaposition, I think, is key for what Augustine is doing and how he conceives of humility, that um, throughout his work, he's constantly playing off the fact that God is, uh, you know, ase, self-existent. God is... Um, you know, totally sufficient in and of himself, and yet is is constantly and even in a, in a sense eternally um, acting for us and is God for us. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's that's great. Well, and that kind of helps us get into this question of exactly what is uh humility um so oftentimes uh i think in a lot of your work goes a long way to say uh you know it, it sort of makes sense to um to talk about christ um for us as humble so uh, christ in the incarnation um that sort of humility um in the economy of salvation makes sort of makes more sense or is easy to ex easier to explain using Philippians 2 uh, where where he does not consider equality with God something to be grasped but takes on the form of the servant um, and so a lot of people want to talk about the humility of God sort of more in this direction but your work is trying to drive that definition of humility uh, and and to see that as one of God's perfections um, so you know sort of going back towards this uh, God in himself um, so, so why is that a difficult thing to say? Why is it that hard to talk about God as humble in God's self? Yeah, and and I even in my work, as you know, if you've read you've you've read it, uh, want to be careful about what what we do and don't mean there. Um, but part of the you know the the issue driving 
this is if what Christ does and who Christ is, is ultimately not only reconciling, but also revelatory, uh, well, then it has to be at some level revelatory of the being of God. Mm -hmm. And so we can't make some move where we say he's only humble as a human in his human nature. Uh, I don't think, and I, I would even say, Biblically, that, that Philippians 2 passage is the description of a single uh, agent, principally, which uh, is the word, you know, the, the son himself um, from who condescends in, in taking on a nature, not that he's humble only in his human nature. And so, um, you know, you've got that. How if, if humility is central to what Christ does as revealer and reconciler, well, then how is humility revelatory of God himself? Because it, it seems that it, it would be uh, on, on one way of thinking about it anyways. Um, so, so that's part of, of what's going on there. I think, you know, a lot of the times we, we struggle with the idea of applying humility to God because of how we've already um, learned to use the term humility. And... Um, you know, one of the things that's central to the way I think about doing this is, well, that there, there are multiple ways to use a term, and these terms themselves have, have a history. Uh, are there other ways of using that term? Is there another way of defining that term that, that has pedigree and, and history behind it and meaning behind it, not just redefining it willy-nilly, that um, maybe encapsulates something closer to what, what we could be talking about in, in in terms of divine humility. And so I look at um, not only the, the kind of what I would call like a flat definition of humility is just lowliness, but some, some strands of thinking about humility uh, within the Christian tradition that I, that I find more generative. Uh, and those typically revolve not around lowliness per se, but a, about the use of strength for the sake of others, the use of power in a certain way that uh, constitutes a type of humility uh, so that it's possible to be humble. In fact, it's it, a, a sort of more pure form of humility is, is actually exercised by someone the more powerful they are, not the more lowly they are. Uh, and it's then a question of what they do with that power and how they, they wield it. So um, I, I do some of that in, in the second chapter of the book, Definitions of Humility, uh, looking at different things throughout the history of, of Christian tradition and, and also philosophy about what, what do we mean by this, this concept of humility in the first place? Um, because if you just assume that humility is self-deprecation or being lowly for lowliness's sake, well, God's not humble if that's what we mean. But but is that the right way to define humility? Is that the best way to define it? And I don't think I don't think it is. Yeah, I think it was that second chapter. I think it's at the end of the second chapter, maybe if I remember correctly, where uh, you you brought up uh, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, 
and so sort of he had this sort of magnanimous humility that lifted up the the Bennetts. Um, and so I, is that and I I just I wanted to bring that up because I really appreciated it and I had no idea that that was coming. Uh, like I was sort of surprised at a kind of more dogmatic, systematic text uh, that uh, Pride and Prejudice made its way in. So I really appreciated that uh, way of explaining uh, how you're understanding humility. Yeah, it kind of doesn't fit because I don't do very much of that. But um, it was one of my proudest moments to, to work in a Jane Austen reference. Um, you know, uh, Alistair McIntyre makes the case that Jane Austen or, or makes at least the comment that Jane Austen is like our, our sort of best modern uh, ethical philosopher. And, and I think that's right. Um, and, I, and I just it stood out to me that that if we're trying to understand humility in its purest form, that, that Mr. Darcy himself is, is a sort of template of this in the way that he uses his power and privilege uh, for the sake of others. And so that's exactly right. Um, and what I'm doing in that chapter is trying to bring some clarity to what we do and don't mean by humility, how we're going to use it, and is there a sense in which, in our ordinary language, we, we already have a working definition of it that can be helpful and uh, as we then describe God? And, and that's, that, that was kind of where I closed out uh, that. And then a, a reference to uh, George Herbert's, mm. uh, you know, part of the, the temple. Um, so, Yeah. I appreciate it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm sort of, uh, you know, I, I didn't do, I realized actually, uh, I, I looked back at some stuff. I'm trying to uh, work on my dissertation a little bit more. Um, and I realized that I like, you know, when I talked about Augustine or when I talked about Augustine and Augustine's reading of Philippians two, you know, I didn't really make too much reference to the economy of salvation versus it, God and himself. And one of the things that you bring up later is the place of metaphysics and maybe exactly how Bart used them or understood them. But even the, or but even specifically this uh, concept of classical theism. And I, you know, just occurred to me and struck me that, you know, I didn't that's not that hasn't been part of my training. So that hasn't really been I mean, it has at points, but like we were so concerned with like making sure we had the right sources and making sure we knew the languages and all these other things that we weren't dealing in those sort of more uh, we might call them dogmatic categories. Um, not not that I was totally unaware of them, but uh, actually it was one of the things Carol Harrison was on my committee and she uh, that was one of her big sort of um, I don't criticisms in the best way possible. Like one of her like ways of trying to help me improve it uh, was to think more theologically, to think more dogmatically uh, than I had been. I was just trying to explicate what I saw Augustine doing and putting it in its historical context. And she was trying to draw out of me how that functions theologically. So I, it's sort of a big, broad question. How does that how does that work for you? Like, I mean, do you think of yourselves? I guess your degree is called systematic theology. I wanted to call it dogmatic theology. But what? How how do you think about the work that you do, and what does it mean to go about your work as a as a dogmatician or as a systematician? Well, I think for me, it's it's always starting with questions that um, address. Uh, an issue in doctrine um, that, you know, so 
it's the the end goal for me even even as i do scholarship um which you know i mean i've only written one book and uh, hopefully i'll write another but i i think of systematic theology is, is the end goal is to write something that is fresh a fresh way of saying something to the church to the world about who god is what the gospel is and um so you kind of start with the end goal in mind of, of addressing a particular question or a particular issue. And then, you know, Augustine becomes, uh, you know, I guess this can, yeah, Augustine becomes a, a, a sort of a helper in that task. And you find out who's going to be the most helpful person to you. Of course, in actuality, as you engage with these helpers, they change your mind on things and they might even change your task. Um, but but I go to Augustine as a helper. And then I'm heavily reliant on people like you and Carol Harrison, who's phenomenal, uh, to, to help me do some of the work that maybe I'm not very strong in, which is um, really spending that time at the nitty gritty level of the text and in the ancient world. Uh, so try to consult uh, actual patristic scholars, you know, uh, who are the best and, and make sure that the way that I'm engaging with the person, with my own interests, but the, uh, the way that I'm engaging with Augustine is um, respectable and, and accurate. So uh, I think about it that way that, you know, we need to team up. There are a few people who, who have uh, put these things all together in themselves and those are the eminent scholars and i think carol harrison's a good example that her books on augustine are just phenomenal um and um so yeah it's that that's does that kind of answer your question there i mean oh yeah absolutely and i think Uh, the same thing so so i'm using people i'm i'm which probably drives if i don't do it i always have to worry about the the people who are like augustine scholars or bart scholars proper uh, looking over my shoulder and and saying that I'm abusing them and and that's a good sort of tension to have to make sure that I'm never doing that that I'm actually engaged in the scholarship um, and and uh, putting them to dogmatic use in ways that are um, in keeping with what they are actually saying in the text. So yeah, no, that's very helpful. Like I say, it was it was part of me. I mean, this is just part of like I like I said, I try to think of the podcast as like ways that I can continue to learn. Like so I could just write to, you know, I could have people on and I, I, I learn as much through conversation as I do through reading and writing. So it's helpful to hear other people describe their task and you know how they go about their work and And I'll say I'll say one other thing that I, I think is right about bringing later categories to Augustine. Um, again, you have to do so very carefully. And, and let's say for other patristics as well, you have to do so carefully um, and not anachronistically. And you need to be really clear about what you're doing. But so many of these categories came out of Augustine as people read him later. You know, like you think of um, the the medieval scholastics, you think of um, Anselm and Aquinas and clearly going way beyond Augustine and bringing other things in, but um, learning theology from Augustine, like in really important ways. And so there's a sort of reverse engineering that that you can do here um, that I think is a helpful way to 
to get into what Augustine is actually saying. Again, always being very clear and respectful of, of the text. But yeah, so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm really interested in. Yeah, I think that's quite, uh, quite helpful. I'm going to take a quick break from our podcast to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, The Upper Room. There are some daily comforts that just make you grateful and feel more grounded in life. Petting the dog, hitting that snooze button, and of course, that first cup of coffee. These are things that you count on every day to help you get where you want to go. Things like The Upper Room Daily Devotional Guide. You can count on The Upper Room for daily inspiration, daily community, and daily prayer. It is the only daily devotional magazine written by readers, ordinary people, people who have encountered God in daily situations. The Upper Room is here for you every day through your email, a custom app, or a printed magazine. Enjoy a free 30-day trial of our email or app service by visiting upper, theupperroom.org welcome. That is U-P-P-E-R-R-O-O-M dot O-R-G slash W-E-L-C-O-M-E upperroom.org slash welcome to get your first 30 days free. It is interdenominational and written by readers and it has 80 years of history and 5 million readers around the world. So this is a well-established organization. So I encourage you to go check them out and get their emails and devotional guides from their website. Um, let's see. So I had a few other things here. Um, so I, I guess I've kind of asked a few of them. Uh, yeah, so... Um, well, one of the things that we were talking a little bit about reverse engineering um, and one of these phrases that has come up that um, actually, I mean, probably to my detriment, I never heard when I was in seminary, when I was doing my master's, we didn't talk about divine simplicity. I think I heard some of it. Uh, I went to Princeton Seminary, so I think I heard some of it around differences over interpretation of BART and some things, but I wasn't really pr too privy to those conversations. So when one, one of the things that you're trying to do uh, as you think about God and God's self versus God uh, in, in the economy, and some of this has to do with these, uh, this idea of divine simplicity and what is it, what can one properly say about God? What are God's perfections? What are God's attributes? Um, so why, uh, what what exactly is this idea of divine simplicity? Why and why is that a way that uh, you know one should uh, consider when thinking about even Augustine? So part of this has to do with whether you know exactly to what extent Augustine had the same ideas in his head. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, really clear that Augustine's deeply committed to divine simplicity. It's clearly not worked out in the scholastic way that it is in. Thomas, for instance, and um, uh, but what is divine simplicity? I mean, divine simplicity uh, stated succinctly in the least objectionable way is that um, God is holy who he is uh, at all times. There's no composition in God, uh, meaning that um, God doesn't, you know, God is wise, correct? So God is wise. Well, where does he get his wisdom? He doesn't get it from anywhere outside of himself. He is his own wisdom and he is it entirely and completely. Um, and, and I think that, that these 
categories, especially simplicity, are are really just um, sort of worked out from the divine name, uh, Exodus 3 the, itself, that what does it mean for God to be entirely self-defined? He is, he is defined only by himself and not in comparison uh, or even contrast ultimately with anything else. And um, so that's, that's kind of, um, I mean, I'm a little bit all over the place here. Simplicity is not as simple as it sounds like, but um, that's, that becomes God's simplicity, his oneness, his unity, his, um, which is very, very related to um, God's unknowability ultimately and the fact that, that he has to make himself known to us because we live in a world of complexity rather than simplicity. We live in a world where uh, everything is known um, by, you know, uh, in the space of, of um of time and spatial concepts and bodily concepts and God is beyond all of these things. And so um, what you end up having to say is, is divine simplicity is this negative uh, statement of a sort that serves as a rule over all of the other statements that are, are made even in scripture, uh, not a rule that negates them, but a rule that is always qualifying and helping to, to determine what they mean so that rather than flattening them out as creaturely concepts, they continually are lifted up and point us uh, to the God who has made himself known and yet remains beyond knowing. And so um, simplicity is, is this sort of overarching rule that is really, really important. Without simplicity, you don't get Trinitarian theology classically conceived. Um, you get something like tritheism or modalism or something like that. But, but simplicity is, is uh, very central to the way that Trinitarian doctrine actually gets um, understood as it's developed in, in the first centuries of the church. Well, and that kind of relates to one of the, the sort of struggles for Bart, uh, at least as you explain Bart's concept of humility, like you want to see uh, Christ or Bart wanted to see Christ as in some way subordinate to God or humble to uh, the Father, uh, with without there being um, uh, without there being monarchicism, without there being a hierarchy within the Trinity, um, and so that's that's one of these difficulties, uh, these part of this task, as I understand it, for dogmaticians and for systematicians, is to work out exactly how do we understand the things that we are told in Scripture, uh, like so Philippians two, um, and and about Christ and this other, uh, like you brought up Exodus three from Augustine, but how exactly it is that that in some ways Christ seems to be. Uh, so submitting to God, um, but but also because of the way that we understand uh, the Trinity, that that in some ways there's not multiple wills, there is just one uh, will in in the sense of uh, of of all the the members of the Trinity or all the persons in the Trinity having one uh, unified will, um, so that they are ultimately simple. Um, so could you explain a little bit uh, exactly the, the difficulty that Bart runs into um, uh, with respect to this kind of understanding of humility? Yeah, Bart, Bart's really committed to um, 
admirably committed to defining God as he is eternally by what we see in the economy. Um, and so, you know, that whatever you see playing out uh, has to be in, in the life of Christ and um, broadly conceived uh, is itself a reflection of the reality that's eternally true in God himself. Um, and reflection's probably not even strong enough of a word. It's the manifestation of what's eternally true. It is the life of God in some sense. Um, and so, but one of the problems with that is that to do that work of taking what you see revealed in the economy um, into who God is in himself, there, if you do that in a straightforward manner without the necessary sort of work of purgation or purification that is enabled by reading it through the lens of divine simplicity, you end up with some things that are problematic. So um, Bart, I think, sort of simplistically says, well, here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane struggling uh, with a, you know, his own will and submitting it to the will of the Father. Therefore, we are seeing um, that the fact that from all eternity, the Son is obedient to the Father. And um, there are just a number of problems with this that uh, I think a, a deeper commitment to a doctrine of divine simplicity uh, would, would help us avoid, where you go, well, it can't quite mean what you're saying, Karl Barth, um, because God is, there is not multiple wills in the divine being. Uh, there are multiple persons, but person is a term that's used because we don't know what else to say. And um, so you, you end up having the, the divine simplicity rule and the way it negates um, certain ideas that you could get from a more straightforward reading uh, end up pushing you actually deeper into the text and deeper into theology to understand what's really going on, uh, for example, in Gethsemane. And um, you end up thinking, oh, well, we have to think about the fact that he has a human will and a divine will. And um, so in what sense is this actually his human will that uh, is is having to be brought into some sort of submission to the divine will, which is shared by the Father and the Son, uh, or belongs to both of them entirely, uh, or is both of them entirely, rather than the submission of one divine will to the other, which just doesn't make any sense. And so I kind of make the case that um, there's a, a sort of fundamental procedural problem that Bart has, um, and, and that is the way he he does this mirroring work of looking at the economy and sort of going from there without the necessary purgation into the divine life himself, itself. And um, so I argue, you know, that, that that's a procedural problem that in the way that Bart's theology works that, that leads him to problems and, and this being uh, chief among them. So Bart ends up in a weird place where he is either – um, a, you know, um, he, he's either a uh, affirming um, 
a a sort of um, you know he's denying diothelitism. He's saying there's only one will in Christ, uh, which one doesn't want to say if if you care about um, the later councils, um, right. or or he's saying something weird and implying something like tritheism, which of course he's not. Uh, and so there's just this strange tension where where things aren't really working if you dig into it. And, um, and, and I wanted to find out why that was. Again, I, I love Karl Barth. He's one of my favorite theologians. Um, and, and the danger with reading Barth is he just takes over your mind and, uh, and y- you never figure out how to get outside the system. This is, I'm going to say something really controversial, but I'm not in the academic world officially. So this is like the whole problem with everyone at Princeton, right? Is they're like stuck in the Bart, the Bart loop, and anyways, so we don't have to go into that. I, I, I hope none of those people listen to it. They're all going to be mad at me. But. <laughs> uh, well, I I don't know exactly who listens to it, but uh, my guess is that there aren't very many of my friends from Princeton who do, <laughs> uh, and most of my friends from Princeton uh, don't aren't in academics anyway. So um, they're they're doing ministry. I gotta um, put some, I gotta put some juicy. Uh, smack talk in this to kind of help the ratings you know that's right i appreciate it i was gonna say i mean uh, as a side sort of a side point i was ended up with a uh, i ended up in a kind of um back and forth with uh bruce mccormick on facebook um and i tried to get him to come on the podcast but he wouldn't um <laughs> who is bruce mccormick i've never heard of that guy bruce mccormick I'm just joking. Oh, oh I, was, I, was, I was like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. <laughs> Sorry. I like to have fun. I like to have fun. Uh, I'm excited, excited in the thesis. Uh, so yeah. I was anyway. like, I'm pretty sure that's in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I well, yeah, uh, it had to do with Hegel. And I said some things that I maybe were overly simplistic. I don't remember. But I was like, hey, Dr. McCormick, you should just come on the podcast and tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> and he didn't he didn't take me up on it. Well, you should keep trying. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to ha- so let's I was going to have you complete the loop real quick. So what does Catherine Sonderegger, how does she help uh you and Bart out of this kind of problem with humility? How does she return this uh this the the concept of humility uh to 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 be uh, as you described at the beginning with um the sort of the magnanimous humility. Um, how does she help us and help Bart um, fix this problem? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I argue, which is almost seems too convenient, but is that, you know, in Augustine, you've got this sort of tantalizing tension um, pointing to, to the fact that humility is the name that I, the the attribute that names the fact that, that, um, that God is entirely sufficient in himself and yet is disposed uh, to us eternally in mercy in an, in an unnecessary but eternally actualized way. And Bart, I think, sort of breaks that and goes too far in the way he does it. And then Zondereger, she's, she's just right. She, she sort of retains some of the Bartian emphasis on um, the the Christocentrism, she's she's post Bart, um, or you know, but but 
also not making the mistakes that Bart is doing. And so I find her to be just um, kind of the, the person who saves this whole conversation for me uh, and helps me find a way forward. And she essentially, by um, thinking of the divine being in terms not of causation, uh, but instead using the concept of energy, uh, is able to capture the fact that God is sort of outward movement from himself. Uh, and that's a truth about him in himself. And uh, goes from there to really have this sort of ethicized uh, concept of omnipotence, as she called it, uh, which is uh, a lot in keeping with the, the sort of subtitle of my book, which is uh, morally perfect being. Like, how do you take these, these attributes um, like omnipotence? Well, there's a way of thinking of, of God being all powerful, for instance, uh, in, in a sense that's theoretically neutral. Well, he's all powerful, but to what end? And um, sort of ethically neutral, I suppose you could say. And Zondereger says, no, we can't conceive of the divine attributes uh, in that way that that has this kind of potential ethical neutrality as if God could use his power for anything um, because God is not only a sort of vague, abstract power, but God is a person that is uh, always and already a type of person, a specific um moral person and has uh, his power uh, ordained within, you know, that's probably not the right word, has his power uh, oriented uh, to flow out in goodness. And so uh, she just really has interesting ideas about what it means to, um, to think about these divine attributes in terms of uh, their moral qualities uh, that are, and, and seeing that those moral components as integral to the the attribute itself and it's just interesting how the only way she's really able to do that is is by uh heavy heavy reliance on humility the concept of humility and she uh, is able to talk about humility in a way that is not about serv servility or submission um those could be parts of it but but principally uh it's about the use of power and God's use of power. And so she just kind of comes in as the savior of the book. Um, it's funny how that happened. I had written everything except uh, figuring out how I was going to going to end the book. And then I got a hold of her, uh, her first volume of her systematics and read it, not thinking it was going to be part of my dissertation. And I thought, She's answering all the questions that I've been, been asking as I wrestle with Augustine and Bart, and uh, I need to write a chapter about her. And um, even though it seems too convenient that she she solves all the problems, she did. And so, um, yeah, that's that's kind of why the the last chapter is is reliant on Zondereger. Um, and uh, by the way, her her new book is. Uh, her second volume of that systematics is coming out um, on November third, so um, there will be a a German um, a German American by descent who capitalizes way too many letters that should be the subject of everyone's attention on November third, and it's not Donald Trump; it's Catherine Zondereger. <laughs> I agreed. 
Um, well, my my last uh, parting kind of question here that uh, so. All right. We're going to turn to the practical, I guess you could almost say. But so I was just thinking about the fact that uh, I was given the latitude to teach a class at my church and I called it uh, Africans Against the World. Um, how the resolve of the African church, I don't know, saved Christianity, or I can't remember how I uh, subtitled it. But we got to Cyril of Alexandria, and we started talking about the Council of Chalcedon. And I said, how am I going to under, how am I going to help the class of sort of, uh, you know, average churchgoers who don't have theology degrees uh, or philosophy degrees? How am I going to get them to think through why the solution came of, um, you know, Christ out of two natures or in two natures. Um, both of those are translations, but be that as it may, Christ in two natures, um, fully God, fully man, what we stand, what we say. And so I, I asked them the question. I said, okay, well, how can we, uh, let me think about, let's think about this. How would you define uh, God? Like what, what would you say? What, what do we know about God? What can we say about God? And none of the answers I got included anything remotely like divine simplicity, um, and, you know, as an analytic philosopher, as an undergrad, you know, we thought about the three, oh, God, God is omniscient, omnipresent, um, omnibenevolent and omnipotent or whatever, but not specifically simplicity or not specifically, you know, some of these other, uh, these other kind of concepts and then humanity, you know, we started talking about creativity or we talked about all these other things, but we didn't strictly speaking, talk about a soul and a body or, you know, some of the, the wills or some of the things that become uh, sort of important categories for trying to figure out how Christ as a human was also God. Um, and some of the, you know, the, the heresies like, well, it was the, the mind of God and a human person or something like that. So how, how, you know, how important is it, let's say, or uh, do, is that part of your work as a pastor, you think, to help people think uh, through these maybe more um, arcane um, or, um, I, I don't know, occult, but in the sense of dark, uh, not uh, uh, using the Latin definition, um, I don't know, the harder to, to, to explain parts of sort of metaphysics and philosophy and theology is that is that part of a pastor's task? Do we would we be better as a church if we had more robust concepts? And you know, I don't know. How do we go about that task? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I don't know that I figured out always how to do it, but I think I've found um, plenty of places, whether it be occasionally in a sermon uh, or in teaching certain courses, um, you know, or discipling people who are pretty intellectual. And there are a lot of people that are like that. So there, there's just all different kinds of, of ways that um, these kinds of things work themselves out. Um, I, I also think we really ought to go back to how did the patristic scholars, how did the, the, the sorry, the not patristics, the, the patristics, the church fathers, how did they do this work? Because um, Augustine, for instance, you know, he's, he doesn't, he saves his most technical stuff for outside of the sermons, right? Um, but then you can clearly see where he does bring in some pretty heavy, heavy theology. Um, you can see how his, his um, 
his more precise thinking uh, is fueling his preaching and his reading of texts. Uh, and I think he's just such a model, or you think of uh, some of the greatest theological texts we have uh, from the early church were sermons, you know, or end up being sermons or some kinds of discourses given for the church. Um, and so I'm in this journey of just trying to, to think about how do I meet the pastoral needs of a church? And not everyone's always interested in these questions. There are many other things that, that they need and are interested in. Um, but then what do these, these issues of, you know, kind of doctrine, uh, theology proper, you know, how, what, what pastoral function do they have? And they have a worship function. Um, they draw our mind, uh, learning these, these things about God, the, some of these apophatic uh, theological moves to disabuse us of habits of thinking about God in creaturely terms, uh, has this way of lifting our minds from uh, our sort of being overly sure of our concepts of God, uh, hopefully not in a way that's ultimately um, unsettling, but that's unsettling enough to uh, throw us back into searching the scripture and throw us back into a life of prayer and seeking God and encounter with God. And so I think there's a real worship sort of liturgical and um, uh, there, there's like a, an ascesis that, that can happen uh, in the teaching and learning of theology within the church that's uh, that, that's really important. And so that's one way I think of it is, you know, people need to be disabused of ideas of God that are um, too small to who, who's the guy who J.B. Phillips, your God is too small. Um, you know, I don't think he meant it quite in the way I'm talking, but, but there's a real spiritual refreshment for us to realize that we've, we're barely scratching the surface of who God is. And, we're, we're, we're constantly needing to return uh, to that, that process of seeking him, which involves the mind and it involves the body and it involves prayer. And uh, so I do think that, that theology proper, when done in the right way in sermons and in church teaching, can keep us in that process, that, that spiritual process of interpretation and prayer, uh, and in, induct us into that process as well. So uh, I do think we need more of it. It's not always easy to figure out how to do it. If it doesn't terminate and, and lead people by example into a real spiritual um, encounter with God, or at least seeking that encounter with God, uh, I think it fails if it becomes a sort of dry scholastic exercise um, yeah. to itself. But the dry scholastic sort of element of it can be involved in a deeper, more robust spirituality. That I, That's what I think we need. So well, long, long-winded answer there. I apologize. No, no, that's great. That's, I mean, you know, I, uh, I, I think I agree with you. Um, and I appreciate, uh, yeah, just hearing some, some thoughts on that and hopefully, uh, whoever's listening, uh, can, will be edified and, and, uh, encouraged by it as, as I was. Um, so I want to thank Dr. Uh, Wilcoxon, um, for coming on, um, and, 
you know, this is this was definitely one of those conversations that stretched me uh, quite a bit, um, as did his book. So I commend it to all of you. Um, it is a it is both, uh, you know, a good um, esquisis, as you said earlier. It's a good way to, to strengthen my my mind, uh, but also my soul uh, as I think through, you know, who what kind of God God is uh, for for us. Uh, so so thanks, Dr. Wilcoxon. And um, it was a pleasure to have you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me and uh, hope to meet you in person sometime. And um, yeah, thank you.